Um, would anybody like to include anybody in prayers? Yes. A friend of mine having a, had a little arrhythmia, so he's having a cardiac cath today. So. Steve, a cardiac what? Cardiac catheterization. Okay. So to see if there's any blockage and they might have to put a stent in. So. What's his name? Steve. Steve. Yes. My son Michael and his wife Winnie are flying back as we speak from Spain to come back home to the United States. So I would pray for safe travel. Say his name again. Michael. And Winnie. Michael and Winnie and Steve. Okay. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again for the gift of our life, um, the gift of yourself to us, especially in Mass, um, and most especially for this um, Easter octave, this, um, this time of, um, what do we call it, a rebirth, a renewal, a sharing in your risen life um, so that whatever sins we carry, whatever burdens, the long Lent and the work of putting them away, struggling to repent, we're asked to not let the gravity of our sins or the seriousness with which we take them keep us from the joy of being with you in your risen life. Um, during this period, even if we carry our sins forward and struggle to put them away, help us, help us to do it in a spirit of joy to be glad to be with you. Um, how good you are um, that you took on our sins. Um, help us not to take that for granted in any way in the gifts we receive from you. I ask this as a blessing for all of us as we go forward. Ask a special blessing. Um, watch over Steve um, in his exam. Um, be with him, let him know your presence, um, watch over him, whatever the results are, and be with uh, Michael and Minnie. Winnie. Winnie, sorry, Michael and Winnie on their trip home. <coughs> Keep them safe, and surround them with your protection, let no harm come to them. Um, let there be a joyful reunion um, when they uh, meet with their mother again and the delight that she will have seeing them again. Um, we offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, just a quick note. <clears throat> I'm going to, I don't like making comments, you know, in lyrics, but I'm going to make a few now and then as we move through it. I'm just going to do a couple stanzas each week until we get through it because it's too long. But something you should know, two, two things you should know. Robert Bridges, who is one of the great 19th century poets, was a close friend of Hopkins, and he read his work a lot. And he was um, actually, I think, helped by Hopkins a lot because Hopkins did something so entirely new that he was difficult to read. But the correspondence between the two of them helped clarify what Hopkins was doing. When, when Bridges got a hold of this poem, he had very little good to say about it. It was so obscure, it was so difficult. Hopkins' response, because he was so convinced of the goodness of what he was doing, he knew what he was doing, 
<clears throat> and he knew how original it was. Hopkins went back to a ancient English early and medieval English alliterative verse. We talked about that at one point, that heavy beat. He went back to origins of the English language and went back to the Renaissance with the great Renaissance poets, Dunn and Shakespeare and all that they were doing the language. So he had a, scholar's not the right word, but he had a grasp of those things that only a very conscientious, dedicated person would have. And he put them to use in his poetry. He sent this off to Bridges. Bridges responded very critical of it, and Hopkins' response was, I, I, I should have brought the letter, his, his response is, um, that the way you, the, you should have read it the way the filter works in the Thames River. He said when the, when the muddies come into that part of the river where it gets cleansed, the, the, the water gets cleaner and cleaner and cleaner as it moves along. And he said, you should have read it that way, that if you had been patient with it, you would have found that it got clear and it would have spoke to you. So he's chastising another, this is a serious poet that he's talking to. He's chastising him for not being patient enough. So I'm going to put all of that on you, how <laughs> patient you're going to be when you, when you go through the muddies, the muddy <laughs> with the difficulties of this and see if you come out with some clarity. That's the first thing. The second thing you should know is this. Hopkins was reading a newspaper and came across the account of um, five nuns who had been exiled from Germany. The, when the Falk Laws were put into effect in Germany, as you know, the, the convents were confiscated and the Catholic Church was being persecuted. It happened in England. It was happening in Germany. Faulkner, um, Hopkins prayed for England all of his life. He saw England as existing in a state of apostasy, that it had left the church. It was separated from Rome. He believed that really difficult. Remember, Gerard Manley Hopkins was one of the converts that came out of that Tractarian movement in the 19th century. He and John Henry Newman were probably the two major figures. Remember, the Tractarian movement is that movement where the broad English church was aware that it was becoming too soft, too liberal, and they wanted reforms, the Protestants did. They wanted to see it toughen up to get better because it was losing its way. And so many of the men that began with the intention of helping the English church reform itself, once they began to study the history, found out that the reforms they wanted to make were already in place in the Catholic Church. And the more they studied it, the more they went back into history, the more they realized that the Protestant Church was in error. That what they wanted had always been there all along. That, that as a matter of fact, the, the, the softened condition that they were in was the result of turning away from the Catholic Church. So a number of those people converted. John Henry Newman is one of them. George Manny Hopkins is the other. He prayed for England his whole life. Um, and you'll see a prayer at the end of this poem, actually. But here he's aware of the, something similar to that going on in Germany, that these five nuns were forced into exile. The, the, um, the convent properties were confiscated by the state. And they had to leave. Halfway across the channel crossing, a storm hit them, and they died. He, he was so moved by that event, reading it, um, I think almost to a point of tears, and it brought him to a personal crisis. 
when he talked with a priest about it, the priest said he thought somebody should write a poem about it. Hopkins took the hint and went home and produced this poem. So the poem, the, the, the historical background is real for this poem. But what it did was bring him to a personal crisis of his own because it raised these questions how God could let something like that happen. So at the center of this poem is this theme. It is the great theme of the poem. We can call it the paradox or the mystery of suffering. How, how God can let people suffer, allow things. And what we're going to see over the course of the poem is that no suffering, God allows no suffering, none, without offering somewhere in it a means of grace for anybody open to it. The question is, are they open? So at the heart of this poem is this paradox about suffering and the goodness to come out of it. How can good come out of suffering when suffering seems so obviously an evil? Okay? So that's the great theme. <clears throat> at the center of this poem, something's going to happen with Hopkins, and it bears on the work that we're doing with Faulkner. And I'll come to that shortly. So I hope this is going to be like a detective story. You're just going to have to wait and read, because I'm only going to do a few stanzas each week, because it's too long. My, my hope is that you will read it, even, even if it, it's muddy, and it, try to work your way through it. The other poem that's included at the beginning of this packet is called The Loss of the Eurydice, another ship that went down. Um, before we finish this, I'm not going to read this poem, it's just there for you to, it's, it's a beautiful poem itself. He did something here with a rhyme scheme, and I'm going to challenge you guys. If you go through this poem and look at the rhyme scheme, you'll see that it rhymes by couplets. Take a look at the Eurydice. The Eurydice, it concerned thee, O Lord, 300 souls, O alas, on board. Some asleep, unawakened, all unwarned, eleven fathoms fallen. So you can see it's writing couplets, right? Lord, board, unfallen, stroke, oak, downs, burial. Um, um, on bullion, major treasure. There's a problem with the rhyme scheme in there. See if you can pick it out, and, and it'll be interesting to see if you to watch what Hopkins does with it. But... Anyway, the wreck of the Dutchland. <coughs> I'm, I'm, I don't like doing this, but I'm going to make comments just now and again, to hopefully to see if I can help focus the soot. It isn't so muddy um, for you guys when you read it. The wreck of the Dutchland, um, the first part. Thou mastering me, God, giver of breath and bread. World strand, sway of the sea, Lord of the living and the dead. He is the master of creation. He's in control of everything. He's the strand and the sway of the sea. Thou hast bound bones and veins in me, fastened me flesh, and after it almost unmade, what with dread thy doing. And dost thou touch me afresh? Over again I feel thy finger and find me. God fashioned and made him and almost undid him with a tear that he created in him um, because of his awareness that he could be separated from him. 
Um, so he lives, remember fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? It's one of the gifts, it's one of the gifts of the Spirit. Thy doing and dost thou touch me afresh over again, I feel thy finger and find thee. I did say yes, remember that he's a priest. So he's recalling um, his ordination, God's presence in church, the walls, the altar. Um, but what? think about, if you were to go to the center of a man's soul when he's being ordained, what must go on there? Not only the great joy, but the dread. That by taking on that danger, he, Father has said this in fact, he could actually be moving himself closer to damnation. Because will he be worthy to the burden he will pick up. I did say yes at that lightning and lashed rod. Thou heardest me truer than tongue confess thy terror, O Christ, O God. Thou knowest the walls, altar, and hour and night, picture a chapel, the swoon of a heart that the sweep and the hurl of thee trod hard down with a whore of height. The thought of what he would be expected to do and the dread you know, the high things, the great things, and um, the dread of the fall. And the midriff a strain with leaning of, laced with the fire of stress. The frown of, the frown of his face before me, the hurl of hell behind, where, where was, where was a place? I whirled out wings that spelled and fled with a fling of the heart to the heart of the host. He finds relief in the Eucharist. He flies there. He takes comfort there, yeah, with the dread that he carries, um, taking the host, the Eucharist, comforts him. I whirled out wings that spell like a bird taking flight and fled with the fling of the heart to the heart of the host, to the heart of Christ. My heart, but you were dove-winged, I can tell, carrier-witted, as if Christ were a bird himself. You were meeting, I'm bold to boast. To flash from the flame to the flame then, tower from the grace to the grace. I am... <clears throat> um, you all know the, the, the image of the hourglass with the sand coming through? You know that at the edge the sand is secure because it's held in place by the glass, right? But in the, midder, in the middle of it, it's soft silk. That's an image of the sin. And I, I'm assuming all of us know this, that, that the sins that we commit Maybe I'm speaking too much for myself here. I think there's probably something most of us feel. That it's like a helplessness when you commit a sin that you know you don't want to commit, but you do it again and again. Whatever, whatever the sin is, it's like a softness in us that just gives in, whatever it happens to be. So he images it to that, the hourglass. And notice the hourglass because time's running out. So the figure there. I am soft, sift in an hourglass, at the wall fast, but mined with a motion adrift, and it crowds and it combs to the fall. It just gives in, you know, in the middle of it. I steady as water in a well, to a poise, to a pain, but rope with always, all the way down from the tall fells or flanks of the vole, a vein of the proffer of the gospel proffer, a pressure of principle. Christ's gift. So even, even with his sin, he's aware, he's aware of the gift that Christ offers him in himself. I kiss my hand to the stars, lovely asunder, starlight wafting him out of it. 
and glow, glory, and thunder, kiss my hand of the dappled with damps in the west. I mean, the, he sees the beauty of things in nature so clearly. Since though he is under the world's splendor and wonder, his mystery must be in stressed, stressed. For I greet him the days I meet him and bless when I understand. There are two terms in Hopkins' world that meant everything to him. One of them was called instress, and the other is called um, inscape. Instress is his word to describe what he calls the being of things. It's as if God and the universe call it the logos, but it's this everything is stressed. Why? Because God keeps it in being. So whatever, it can be a flower being, being itself, being a flower, or whatever happens to be. That in a scientific world, things tend to be abstracted geometrically. In Faulkner's, sorry, in Hopkins' world, he's so aware of the beauty of things that there's this energy. And I think women feel it more than men with nature. I know when Doc. And Suzanne, um, she loves flowers. There's always flowers in her house. She gardens. Um, that you, that you feel the the beauty of something in nature. There's a delicacy, a beauty to it. In stress was that energy, that <coughs> force. He felt the source of that is God. So God is. In, <coughs> if Christ is the Word, Christ is in stressed everywhere. Remember the remember the wind hover. It was an image of Christ. Or the fire going out, or the, the plow down cillion. Remember when the farmer was working his land. <clears throat> Christ is present everywhere in creation. It's in that instress, the instressing of God. So he sees it everywhere. The other word was called inscape. Spelled just like it sounds. Inscape was the pattern of the thing, because each thing has its own pattern, an oak. Right? The pattern of an oak tree is very different from a cypress or or uh, azalea is very different from. Um, hmm? I was looking for that too. <laughs> I was. She, could, um, she knew um, the inscape of a of an azalea is different from that of a lily. They have a different pattern, but every one of them is a pattern. There's a beauty to it. So he finds Christ everywhere in creation. I kiss my hand to the stars, lovely asunder, starlight wafting him out of it, and glow, glory, and thunder, kiss my hand to the dappled with damson west. Since though he is under the world's splendor and wonder, his mystery must be in stressed, stressed, for I greet him the days I meet him, and bless him when I understand. Not out of his bliss springs the stress felt, so the stress he feels, he knows, comes from his relation to God. That he, God keeps him in being. He breathes into him. Not out of his bliss springs the stress felt, nor first from heaven, and few know this, swings the stroke dealt. Stroke and a stress that stars and storms deliver. That guilt is hushed by, hearts are flushed by and melt. But it rides time like riding a river. And hear the faithful waver, the faithless fable and miss. They tell stories, they miss the meaning of, of some stress that entered the world that added to the stress, the strain. What was that? It dates from the day of his going in Galilee. I will leave it there. When Christ enters the world, that intensifies the stress because 
he's going to go to a crucifixion and suffering, the, mean, the meaning of suffering will change at that moment. People will understand suffering, the reason of it, the why of it differently. So that's the beginning of the wreck of the Deutschland. Remember, it's all moving towards the, 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 the storm um, taking the ship down and the, and the five nuns dying. <coughs> okay. Um, very, very quickly. We moved from the north to the south. We, we talked about the differences between the two cultures. Remember that the, the founding of the north in Plymouth was religious. In, in 1620, that group that had left England and gone to the Netherlands, remember, consisted of two parties, the, the Puritans and the uh, Separatists. The Puritans believed that the Anglican reforms were correct, uh, that they had not gone far enough. The separatists believed that the Anglican forms were fundamentally wrong, that they wanted a new kind of covenant. Both of them were united in their hatred of the Catholic Church. They thought the Catholic Church was wrong, that reforms needed to be made. So they went to the Netherlands and then finally left and came here. So the founding in America in Plymouth was religious. <coughs> the South founding in Jamestown took place Years before that, we don't even recognize that today. That's how interesting that is. The Jamestown founding took place in 1607, 13 years earlier, before Plymouth. That founding was not religious, it was economic. They came purely for an eco economic purposes. Their goal was economic. They created a plantation culture, you know, and they sent the harvest, the fruits of the harvest, back to the old world. So the two cultures couldn't be more different. The, the northern culture is fundamentally religious and in one sense metaphysical. And we saw that really clearly in Moby Dick. That, that um, because they broke off from the past, they, they had to question their roots, what they were about. Um, um, it was highly competitive. And we saw, at least if we take Moby Dick as our, as our reference point, that there's this fundamental violence and I think it stems from Calvin, that there is the sense that um, they had to do everything they could to show that they weren't among the damned. To show that you weren't among the damned, you had to make everything good. So there's this driving force to be good, to be productive, to show that you're among the elect. So um, <clears throat> one of the qualities of the northern Protestant mind is this um, powerful determination to get things done, to accomplish things, to show your, you, you can't let things be because the danger is too great. It could be a sign that you're among the damned. That's why there's this overstriving in the American, so much overstriving in the American character. And they were highly individualistic. You know that. They were all, there's nobody, there's no pairs in um, Moby Dick. The only pair is Quiquig and Ishmael. And, and, and they really are, remember, they're close. They're, that, there's that wonderful description of Ishmael waking up in the morning with Quiquig's arm over him. And he describes him as being married. And remember the monkey rope scene where they're tied together. Um, and he said it was like a marriage. Um, all the other men are married. But they're at sea so much, it's, we have, we're left with the sense that they almost don't know their families. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, good. 
Um, and, and, but Ahab warns him off, and remember, he, he threatens him. He says he feels himself becoming so tender of him, he's afraid that that tenderness will keep him from his quest, and he, he goes on aboard. That was more protective anyway. Yeah, but there's a threat to it. I think I think that's real. When Ahab says, I mean, he says, "I will murder you." Oh. Um, he's so he's so aware of the tenderness that Pip's awakened in him. He can't let him get. I mean, there it is. He can't let him get in the way of that quest. There is this fierce determination to to accomplish that goal. I, I, we just have to underline that because there's that overstriving, I think, in, Amer in the American character to, to win, to not lose, to get something done, whatever the cost. <clears throat> the South is different. Remember, the, 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 so the North is individualistic, very religious, very spiritual. But that spirit very often takes a, a violent form. Um, all, they're, they're very individualistic, and, and Ishmael's description of the member on board ship is that they were all isolados, isolated. Each man was an island to himself. They live alone. In the chapel, they're separated. They're alone. Um, <laughs> I'm going to get it after class. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're not always alone, not all of them. Um, the South is different. The South was a plantation um, ideal, and um, it very pragmatic, very practical. So um, it had to get things done. But there is a much different spirit to the um, character of the of the um, South. The South looked back to Rome and Grecian models. It modeled its culture on Rome and Greece. The the um, the virtues, the Greek virtues, the Roman virtues. And remember when we, when we read the Aeneid, the great virtue of Rome is the common good, the corporate identity. So the South has a much stronger sense of a we um, than the North. And we saw that at the beginning of Go Down Moses. I'm going to go back to that in a minute, but just to um, flesh this out a little bit. So two very different cultures, radically different, north and south, very, very different. It's one of the reasons why states' rights is such an important thing, because it protects the differences. You know, it, sh it should. When the federal government gets too powerful, it tends to cut into that states' right um, protection that, that the Constitution gives the states. Um, Ishmael was the outcast one. Um, we saw that. The, whoever the man is, we don't know. He said, call me Ishmael. That means that was not his name. He, he has to take on a new identity because he no longer has a place in that world. The Christianity is failing. Call me Ishmael. He belongs to an outcast. He's the one who's critiquing it. The, um, the hero of Godown Moses is Isaac. He's the child of promise. He's the one that God says in the Bible. Remember, the covenant is established with Isaac. I will make your heir, you know, the, um, the founder of a people, the, as multitudinous as the stars or the sands of the, you know, the, of the ocean and the beach. So it's and this is going to be interesting. Hold on to this because we're going to come back to this. I, I'm going to ask some questions to, to this effect. Um, Melville's critique is very dark. The hopeful light in Moby Dick is Ishmael. 
He survives it. He, he is open to being. We saw that. He's just open to everything. But the view that he gives us of the world is a very dark one. Isaac is the child of promise. Will Faulkner give us a more enlightened, a more hopeful view? Or will it be just as dark? In his mind, has the child of promise in America failed? I just have to ask this now, and we're looking forward. Because we're looking at, remember this is prophetic, the, the prophet shows us, the prophet always reminds a people, one of the things he does constantly in the Old Testament is to show a people that they've lost their way, to call them back. It's one of the principal functions of the prophet, to help a people see things about itself that it does not want to see. We saw that was true of, of Melville and Moby Dick. Will that be true of go down Moses with Isaac or not? Just keep that in mind. The opening story is very funny. You know that fire in the heart is painful. One of the one of the parishioners in the Monday night group said she had to put it down because she was so saddened by what goes on there. Um, so um, <coughs> the great question, the the novel, the epic, whatever we're going to call it, is should Ike have renounced his inheritance? <coughs> At one point when he reaches age 21 and the land will pass to him, he renounces it. He renounces it because he sees what the <coughs> land does to people. Now remember we talked about this, the, 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 the whole approach of the North is to violently attack nature, to kill. Remember the ironies associated with building and Peleg and, and Ishmael's descriptions of them. Um, the South works with nature. It's got, to be, it's got to be careful of it if it's going to produce a crop to harvest. But there's a sense in which the people in the South have become possessive of the land. That's the great sin of the South. It's mine. And that, that spiritual sin of this possessiveness about the land carries over into their relationships with each other. It carries over in the marriages. It carries over um, in the master-slave relationship. It's the great sin of the South. <coughs> the form we uh, talked uh, Yeah. Speaking with the South, is that because that's all they had? Sorry, go. You're talking about the, uh, the great love for the land. Yeah. Okay. Whereas the difference of the North, North had much, much more uh, diversity. Whereas the South, that's all they had was the land. The, the, I mean, let me, let me try to answer this from the perspective of the book, what the book will show us as we, I mean, not make this personally South. What we see is that, um, oh, Mike, I want to let the book answer. What we're going to see is that um, even if they, even if that's all they had, that there are different attitudes you can take towards the land, even if it's the one thing. Molly will say of Lucas, you, you know from Fire in the Hearth, she said he um, he's cursed. And if you from Fire in the Hearth, you know that Lucas won't stop at anything to keep it still going to to, right. to illegally take something from the land to make something that he shouldn't, um, to the, the, the um, metal detector machine, he becomes obsessed. But what we see in, in the characters over and over again, in one form or another, 
is that this spirit of possessiveness takes over. So there's, there's a difference between, say, Molly, who serves. I mean, she brings out lunch, she does what she can, and Lucas, who is ruthless in trying to extract something. So one of the issues here is, is whether, you, whether your approach to it, I mean, I'm just being very general now, but I think I mean, the, the book will answer it. There's a different, and Ike's going to answer it profoundly. We have to wait to get there. Um, is there a way that you can stand to the land um, in love rather than in a spirit of possessiveness? Because that'll change, that'll change everything you do, not only with the land, but what you do with each other. So let me leave it at that, if I can. And try to let the book answer because it will. Um, the form of the, the form, we've talked about the form of a word. We can't just read for the subject matter. We've got to be aware of the form. The form here is what I would call asynchronic. Synchronic, with time. Most novels are synchronic, with time. They're in sequence with events. This happens, this happens. If you read a Jane Austen novel, it's coherent and sequential. The Charles Dickens novel, pretty much. When you get into the modern world, they're not sequential anymore. They, they're asynchronic, against time. You know in the book that you'll be reading and suddenly you'll find yourself 45 years before. And you're back in time. Why? Because in the modern world that we've learned that so often experiences from the past be, had take on such an importance in our lives that we can be doing something in time, sequential time, and suddenly something will interrupt and we're out, we're out of the moment. That's, that's the modern's way of showing that, and by the way, St. Augustine would have agreed with this. St. Augustine would have agreed. Spiritual time is very different from scientific, um, scientific sequential time. Because the causality of the spirit comes in. Something happens with the spirit intersecting with life, interceding, moving, doing something. So, so much modern art is not coherent, sequential. Um, it's disruptive because it's, it's making us aware that there are other dimensions of reality that intrude on the surface of our life and change it. So we have to say, who's, who's, which writer is being more faithful to the realities of life? By the, I, I hope you know how much I love Jane Austen. If you read a Jane Austen novel, it's just continuous. If you read a Faulkner novel, you're bounced all over the place. Faulkner's trying to create an art that is faithful to cause and effect, because we're in a cause and effect world, but he's also faithful to other realities intruding in. So, and there's no writer, I mean, there's no author, Charles Dickens, who's constantly telling us what to think or hold our hand. We have got to make our way through that. So, so the modern novel always puts greater demands on the reader than a 20th century novel. We, because who, who holds our hand in life? You know, we go through life and something happens and very often we make judgments about it. We think we're right. We can learn three weeks later that we completely misread it because of new facts that we get. Which means we have to be more careful about the way we read things. The judgments we take away. Um, come away with. So, let's, um, I want to get going here because we are, um, just a couple of things about Faulkner that I, I want you to know to keep in your mind. 
Um, he was born in 1897 in the South, um, grew up, was not a particularly good student, wrote poetry early. When he was a young man, he, he tried enlisting in, this, um, in the service during the war, but he was rejected because he was so short. So he went up to Canada and enlisted in the Canadian Air Force and was in training when the war ended and was sent back. When he came back, he, he had such a strong sense of honor about himself and his past. This is so important for understanding Faulkner's work that he lied about his experiences. He told stories about his exploits in the war that he, he never had. Um, growing up in the South, he grew up with his song, this strong sense of honor and how important honor was for his um, forebears, his family, the people that came before him. Strong sense of honor in the, in the South. His grandfather, he knew his grandfather died in a duel in the street. And you know that that was not an uncommon thing in the South. His grandfather and some other man, a, a, a former business um, a partner, I think, squared off in a duel. And his grandfather was killed. He, he had a real admiration, and, and you, you know that the Civil War was lost, and there was the strong sense of honor that these men fought this war courageously, um, and, and at times when there was very little hope, and they came home defeated, but with honor. So he carried with him throughout his life this strong sense of the honor of men who stood for what they believed in. And, um, um, he starts writing early. He goes to Europe like so many Americans who were um, disenchanted with America. And he was in Paris with all of the expatriates, Hemingway, Gertrude Stein, James Joyce, some of the, you know, Picasso. All, there were just large communities of artists over in Europe at that time. Um, he used to visit the restaurant where James Joyce would take meals, but he never approached him because he was too timid, too shy, because James Joyce already had a reputation of being one of the extraordinary artists of the 20th century. He, he was. He came home and he got involved with a literary group here, and one of the men that he admired told him, you should be writing about what you know best. That was a liberating moment for Faulkner because he realized that he wasn't doing what he could be doing in the stories because he was writing about things he didn't know anything about. It's when he started writing about the South and he created this county, this Yoknok Potofa County, that has these layered existences to them, that he did something that nobody else in the modern world had done. Joyce, James Joyce came close, actually, in Dubliners, but Faulkner goes way beyond them. Two things um, just um, that I want to um, call to your attention. Um, yeah, Faulkner gained um, a really um, great reputation early in his career because he was doing things that other writers weren't. Um, Jean-Paul Sartre in France said this about Faulkner, for the young people in France, Faulkner is a god. Um, he became so popular immediately. And, and you know the French because they, they, the intelligentsia, they love new art and new philosophy and Faulkner was doing something nobody else had done. So he was um, well received there. He became more popular in, in Europe and then went out of favor here. 
because he was so difficult to read. Americans are simple-minded, truly, truly, if you think. <laughs> we really are, we are a simple mind. I'm not kidding, I'm not saying that. I really believe this in my bones. Americans are given to black-white ways of looking at the world. We are a simple-minded people. The, the French loved him. He went out of um, print here. Um, it wasn't until Malcolm Conley did a portable Faulkner that he came back into print and then, and then critics began to realize how great he was. And then he went on to do the great works, um, Sound of the Fury, As I Lay Dying, and um, other works. Um, in one of the interviews, um, he had, I think at, at the, at a, at, I think it was in Mississippi, I'm not sure, he was asked a question about um, Ernest Hemingway. This to me is one of the most embarrassing things that I have to say about Faulkner. And I mean, it, it, it actually makes me sad because I have so much admiration for him. And not for the reasons that other people have scruples about him, but he was asked about Hemingway and what he thought of him. And in the interview, he said, he has no courage, has never climbed out on a limb, has never used a word where the reader might check his usage by a dictionary. Hemingway heard that and was deeply hurt. I mean, really cut, because Faulkner was, Hemingway and Faulkner were probably the two greatest writers in America at that time. They corresponded with each other and um, um, Faulkner went on to, to say um, this. He tried to clarify what he said um, and said to Hemingway, um, that he was referring only to Hemingway's craftsmanship as a writer, and he told him how he was judging the quality of writing on its degree of failures, that Hemingway was next to last because he didn't have the courage to risk bad taste, overriding dullness. Now, I want you to stop and think about this for a second, because this is not a small thing for me. You remember in that opening of Go Down Mode, there's no punctuation, no caps, no commas, and I, I raised the question then, what in reality corresponds to writing? If you look at the world, world is not set up in structured grammatical sentences. We use language with its grammatic, it's got a, a, a subject and a predicate, a caps, periods, right? We write, but what in reality corresponds? If you look at reality, reality does, isn't set up in terms of grammatical structures. And I suggested when we looked at the opening that he's, he's attempting to recover something about reality in the way that he uses language. If, and remember, we talked about this when you looked at the, uh, we, at the in our very first meeting, if you looked at the, at the writers in the 19th century, American writers, they were all copying English writers. They were modeling their writing on English, English as it was written. It's only in the mid-19th century with Melville and Faulkner, or, um, Hawthorne and Walt Whitman that America begins to discover its own voice and begins to write about something that's peculiar to America. That's why we get Melville. Remember I said Melville's doing something nobody in Europe is doing. Nobody. And we're getting a new language. America's discovering its own voice. The culmination of that in one sense is Faulkner. Because you know when you read, sometimes he'll, he'll have a sentence that'll have 13 modifiers thrown into it, and the sentence will go on for a paragraph. And not only will it go on for a paragraph, but we'll find ourselves back 45 years, you know, in the same... Hemi and this is the point. Hemingway would have never 
done any, if you've read Hemingway, you know he tried to make every work of art as perfect as it could be. Now, there's something to be said about that because when an artist overstruggles, when he tries to be too complete to give a, a sense, how much of that is trying to give the illusion that he has this completeness to himself? We talk about Catholics being scrupulous or overly scrupulous. We, you know, we talk about that and laugh about it. There's a danger in that. Otherwise, why would we say it? Faulkner is saying of Hemingway, he was cowardly because he didn't risk bad taste, overriding dullness. If you look at Faulkner's writing, he never repeats himself. Never. The form of every novel is completely different. You'll see this. as we, I wish we could do As I Lay Dying. I Lay Dying is a series of monologues that are not linked by a narrative structure. One person speaks, another person speaks, another person. There's no narrative voice structuring, connecting them. Sound of the Fury is going to have four voices separate. Go Down Moses, seven stories disconnected. Um, Light in August is a continuous narrative. None of them is the same. He didn't repeat. Hemingway repeated himself again and again. Once he discovered something, if we did Hemingway, I'd show you. Once he discovered something, he couldn't help repeat again and again. It's like, I'm going to go out on a limb. It's like Faulkner was moving with the spirit. He just trusted what he was doing. He was capable enough as a writer. So this whole question of writing, I'm going to come back to it because this is the main point of what I want to do today. It's, it's where we're going. Last thing. This whole question of writing is not a small thing here. Um, actually, when, when I first started reading this, it was a little bit difficult. But actually, it's, it, it was almost like this is the way people think. People yeah. don't think in structured sentences. And the way they it's, talk. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. They, they don't talk in structured sentences. And yes. They don't think in structured yes. sentences. So yes. when you're reading it, yes. it's almost like yes. I I, stream of consciousness is not the right thing. But it's almost how you Think. And talk. And and talk. Yes. And so if if you put yourself in that framework, it yes. all makes complete sense. And it's more and natural. It is. Yes. It is. Yes. And it's, it's, yes. You can understand it as long as you can let go of okay, there's not a capital and there's yeah, no right. period. Yeah. Um, Should have had you on Monday or Wednesday night. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would have been glad for you to say that. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Last thing, Faulkner would, before we start, Faulkner was awarded the Nobel Prize, I think as you know, in, in 1949. He was reluctant to, uh, to, to go, he didn't want to go, and finally because he was pressured by friends and his family, he went. He said this in his acceptance speech, and I want you to remember this because everybody acknowledged that it was one of the most important Nobel acceptance speeches that anybody had ever delivered before. Faulkner was, had on his mind the Cold War, because remember the Cold War is going on, and, and we, we looked like we were on the verge of nuclear war constantly during this period. So he was alluding to the Cold War and he said, um, um, a general and universal physical fear exists, he says, whose consequences was to make the young man or woman writing today forget the problems of the human heart in conflict with itself, which alone can make good writing because only that is worth writing about, worth the agony and the sweat. Remember, 
The problem with our modern world is that it's so, it makes the threat of a war and extinction, I mean death, make us forget the problems of the human heart. And he's saying that it's important for the writers to see that because the only thing worth writing about for any young writer is the human heart, the struggles that we have within us. Look at the CG stuff coming out of Hollywood. It's all about machines and adventures. It is, it is never anymore about anything human going on. A man and a woman coming together to talk, like in a Jane Austen novel, it just does not happen. It's just, to me, it's so sad, so sad. Um, the problem of the human heart in conflict with itself, which alone can make good writing, because only that is worth writing about, worth the agony and the sweat. Remember those words, the agony and the sweat. What he's saying is that a good writer cannot write without anguish. There's no good writing. Anybody who's struggling to go enter the human heart is going into a, into a place of pain if he's going to do it well and not cheapen it or make it sentimental, which is what Hollywood does. It cannot deal with love without sentimentalizing it, making it awful, just awful. The artist, Faulkner said, must relearn the old verities. This is crucial. The old verities and the truths of the heart. The old universal truths lacking which any story is ephemeral and doomed. Love and honor and pity and pride and compassion and sacrifice. He concluded on this note, I decline to accept the end of man. I believe that man will not merely endure, he will prevail. He is immortal not because he alone among creatures has an inexhaustible voice, but because he has a soul, a spirit capable of compassion and sacrifice and endurance. Okay. The artist must relearn the old verities and truths of the heart, the old universal truths lacking which any story is ephemeral and doomed, love and honor and pity and pride and compassion and sacrifice. Say those are the great themes of Faulkner's work. Okay, I want to I see if I can make this quick. I just want to touch on some passages in Fire and Hearth just to get us going again. Um, you all know that Fire and the Hearth has three chapters, right? In the first chapter, um, I'm just going to give a brief summary and then I'm going to read the end just to bring it to the end. Then I want to look at those two flashbacks just to focus on those. Um, remember in the first chapter, um, Lucas finds out that George Wilkins has got a still and he's worried because he knows that George Wilkins is stupid and he's afraid that if he gets found out he's going to get discovered because they'll find out that he's working a still too. Where did George learn from? <laughs> the comic ironies are wonderful. So he and, he, and more, he doesn't want George Wilkins marrying Nat, his daughter, so he, he, he wants to set him up and send him off to the penitentiary. So here, here's this, this, this wonderful loving attachment men have with the land. God, he wants to send him off to jail. This is how good the men in the, are in this book. Um, so he sets off to Edmonds to inform on him um, and tells him 
um, but in the middle of the story, he wakes up in the morning to this sound and discovers that his still and George, George's still um, are on his front porch and the sheriff's coming. But he didn't realize that in the middle of the night when he was off trying to move his still, Nat was watching him and followed him. And so she's setting him up so she can blackmail him. The women are not innocent in this story. <laughs> this is the daughter blackmailing her dad. Um, um, so um, the, 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 it's a wonderful comic interplay because she blackmails him and he knows, all of them know that the only way they can get, all of them can get saved from going to jail is if Nat marries George so that they can't testify in each other. So she, she, she blackmails him and says she wants um, a stove and she wants the porch fixed. <laughs> and imagine how happy Lucas, because Lu Lucas is a very, very proud man. Very, you'll know that, very proud. That his daughter would force him to, and what we learned at the end is that after they do marry, the porch is not there. And I can't remember, they didn't even get the stove yet, did they? They spent it all out of his still. Yeah, <laughs> um, right, that's right, George. So blackmailing her dad, as if it would have done any good anyway. So the first chapter is on the George Wilkin dad story. In the middle story, because you know that when he was trying to move his still, he, he discovers that coin and is convinced that there's buried treasure in the land and he's gonna work the land for all it's worth. He sends away for this um, metal detector machine and the salesman tries to screw him the way salesmen do. George turns everything on. If it, I hope you were following that when, when um, when he tries to, when he gets the mule and offers the mule for the, for the machine because he doesn't have the money, he's got the he's got a load of money in the bank. He's just too cheap to, he's too possessive. He will not let go of anything. You know that when he, you know that that was a setup with the, uh, the the salesman, right? That when he took him to the orchard, that he already had that the coins buried. So he's a cunning, shrewd, shrewd man, and. The, he turns the tables on the salesman so that the salesman actually ends up releasing him in his debt and then having to rent the machine himself so that he can hunt for money. So there's this possessiveness in, in, in men wanting to get control of everything. And in the third story, you know that um, Molly comes to Edmonds um, asking for a voice that she wants a divorce. She says she wants a voice that, that she's afraid that Lucas is cursed, that, that he's violating the land. I want to read that passage because it's in that passage where she makes clear, and, and the reader knows, the land belongs to God. That God created nature, man creates the city. If man is wise, here's partly an answer to your question, but if man is wise, he should be taking his bearings from nature because God is present. But what he does instead is try to control it, manipulate it, use it for his own gain. And that's where things go wrong. And then, and then that carries over into his relationships with everybody else. So um, um, she comes and Roth tells her that um, he will go talk to Lucas um, because he doesn't want to see them get a divorce. And then the next day when, they, when he comes, he discovers that Molly has fled. Um, and they send out a search party and they find her practically dead. And she, she's got the, 
the, the metal detector in her hand. She was doing everything she could to flee. And I want to read that section here. In fact, let me read it now because it's, I love it. If, if you've read this closely, you know that there's this kind of standing tension between Roth Edmonds and Lucas, that Roth is white, but he comes down through the female line, mm -hmm. and Lucas is black, but he comes down through the male line. So in his own mind, he's, he's superior to Roth um, and does not want Roth to ever forget that. He calls him Mr. Edmonds. He, he won't... He won't call him Mr. Roth the way everybody else would. Because it's, it's a formality to call him Mr. Edmonds, um, but it's full of contempt. It's absolutely full of contempt, and Edmonds knows that. They, what they have is a standing truce. It's just that's the nature of their relationship. But at the end, when Molly practically dies, um, Roth Edmonds gets furious with him, and I love the passage, so I want to just read that to conclude. And then I want to look... I just, for a few minutes, I want to look at the two flashbacks briefly. Um, take a look at one, I think it's 121. It's my 121, it's got to be yours, 120, 121, somewhere in there. I think this is it, I hope this is it. This is after they discovered Molly with the divining machine in her hand. It's, about, it's the paragraph that says, the day came. Is that page 121? Yeah. The day came, the cotton was all in and ginned and baled and frost had fallen, completing the firing of the corn, which was being gathered and measured into the cribs. With Lucas and Molly in the back seat, he drove to Jefferson and stopped before the county courthouse where the chancellor was sitting. You don't need to come in, he told Lucas. He's furious right now. You know, you know, if you've read it, you know. They probably wouldn't let you. He wants to do everything he can to hurt him. I mean, you can feel him wanting to reach out and slap him. He can't. Probably wouldn't let you in, but you be around close. I'm not going to wait for you. And remember, Aunt Molly gets the house and half your crop this year and half of it. Remember, the arrangement was from the Caslins when they passed down, that the Negroes could stay on the land anytime they wanted because they were free to leave. Um, so there's no reason he has to leave unless something, unless he chooses to leave or he gets kicked off. Um, and Molly gets the house and half your crop this year and half of it every year as long as you stay on my place. You mean every year I keep farming my land I mean, every damn year you stay on my place, just what I said. Kaz Edmonds, give me that land to be mine long as I, you heard me, Edmonds said. He, he's seething. I mean, you can just, um, you heard me, Edmonds said. Lucas looked at him, he blinked. Do you want me to move off of it, he said. Why, Edmonds said. What for? When you're going to be on it all night long, every night, hunting buried money, you might as well sleep on it all day, too. Besides, you have to stay on it to make Aunt Molly's half crop, and I don't mean just this year, I mean every, she can have all of it. He gives it all to her. They go into the courtroom. The chancellor turns once more to uh, Molly and Edmonds to make sure they want to do this, because he's in the middle of the next page. Then he shifted them up his nose and looked after her through them. He made a clucking sound after 45 years you can't do nothing about it. No, sir, Edmund said. I tried. I, 
Chancellor made the clucking sound again. He looked down at the bill, which the clerk laid before him. She would be provided for, of course. Yes, sir, I'll see to that. The Chancellor mused upon the bill. There's no contest, I suppose. No, it's at that point that, you know, remember Lucas comes in and he says he doesn't want a voice. The voice is over. So they stop the proceedings on page 125 at the very end. Just as they're leaving the courthouse and getting into the car, wait a minute, Edmund said. Ha, he said. You bankrupted your waiting. You are, he, he, he has no patience for Lucas at all. You bankrupted your waiting. You've already spent, but Lucas is gone because he never listens to him anyway. He's already turned his back and is leaving. And Edmonds waited. He stood beside the car and watched Lucas cross the square towards the stores, erect between the old, fine, well-care-for hat, walking with that unswerving and dignified deliberation with every now and then, and with something sharp at the heart, Edmonds recognized as having come from his own ancestry too, as the hat had come. They are both tied together by blood. Um, you, I mean, the stubbornness, the pride in the two men, um, he was not gone long. He returned unhurried and got into the car. He was carrying a small sack, obviously candy, a nickel's worth. He put it into Molly's hand. Here, he said, you ain't got no teeth left, but you can still gum it. Um, wait, one, sorry, one more. Um, and 124 at the bottom, when Lucas comes in and says that he doesn't want a divorce, the chancellor engages the, the two of them, and you remember that, that he's a, the clerk is aware of the way Lucas addresses Edmonds. And in his mind, it, it's, he's not showing the proper respect a Negro should for the owner of this plantation. And so he keeps looking at why the uppity, the clerk said, Your Honor, again, the chancellor raised his hand slightly towards the clerk. He doesn't want, he, he knows that a reconciliation, he doesn't want, he doesn't want to become legalistic, he doesn't want to push this too far, he's just saying let him go. He still looked at Lucas, Mr. Roth Edmonds, Lucas said, Edmund moved forward quickly, still holding the old woman's arm, the chancellor looked at him. Mr. Roth Edmonds is as close to politeness as Lucas ever gets and it's in court and he's forced to do it in the court proceeding. So two things happen here at the end, he's humbled in the court. And he goes to buy Molly the bag of candy. Now, don't forget that. Just hold on to that when, when we talk about Christ present in any of this. But I just want to very quickly look at the two flashbacks. Turn to the first section, page 45. We're going to end on with these two flashbacks, but they're really important. You know the sequence of the story, right? Edmunds is going to tell on, he's going to inform on George because he wants to set him up. He gets blackmailed. They avoid going to court. Then there's the salesman story and, and the obsessive looking for gold and the, and the, the, the turning of the, of the um, tables on the salesman. And then we get the Molly episode in the divorce. So that's the fire in the heart. And at the center of it, remember, it's so important, the fire in the heart The fire from, from, from the time of Homer, who, who was the goddess of the hearth? It was Hera. 
Remember how important Hera was. She, she was the goddess of the hearth, the center of the home, because the hearth is the center of domestic love between a man and a woman. And we know from these stories that when Lucas and Molly married, he lit a fire and it has never gone out. So the, the fire in the heart, that the, the fire in that heart, the, the two of them, is the image of the love between a man and a woman. That it's not extinguishable. It doesn't go out. Um, Lucas comes to Roth Edmonds' porch on page 45. You all have it there, George Edmonds said? You all have that paragraph? George Edmonds said, George Wilkins? Do you have that? It should be 45, 44, 44. Do you all have it? George Edmund said, George Wilkins. Now remember, Lucas has just approached the porch. He's come to the porch. Edmund hears him. He comes out and says, George Wilkins, a young man still, a bachelor, 43 years old last March. Lucas did not need to remember now. Now, here's that first flashback, okay? He would never forget that night, early spring, following 10 days of rain. That night, if you look at your... If you look at that sheet I gave you, um, that's um, 1898. We're in 1941, right? So the time frame is the story. The whole novel takes place in 1941, 1942, roughly there. That's the time frame. Now at this point, we're taken back to 1898. So that's 43 years earlier, right? Right? 40, so immediately we go back 43s on the night, on the period when Roth and Henry were born. Zach Edmonds comes to Lucas and Molly's house asking for Molly to help nurse the child. Edmund, or Lucas has to go for a doctor in the storm and he almost loses his life um, to get a doctor to help out with the delivery. Um, so go down. Um, well, let's see. That night, early spring, following ten days of such rain that even the old people remembered nothing to compare with it, and the white man's wife, time upon her, and the creek out of banks until the whole valley rose, bled a river choked with down timber and drowned livestock until not even a horse could have crossed it in the darkness to reach a telephone and fetch the doctor back. And Molly, a young woman, go down. Um, so even before daylight, he was in the water and crossed it how he knew, how he never knew, how he never knew, and was back by dark with the doctor. Go down. A month hence, when the water went down, which he had entered not for his own sake, but for that of old Carruthers McCasman. He did it for the sire, that, that reputation that hangs over this story who had sired him and Zach Edmonds both to find the white man's wife dead and his own wife already established in the white man's house. It was as though on that lowering and driving day he had crossed and then recrossed a kind of Lethe, emerging, being permitted to escape, bearing, buying as the price of life a world outwardly the same yet subtly and irrevocably altered. Because remember, old McCaslin mated with a slave woman that produced the, what he, the illicit line that Lucas is a part of, of slaves, and, and the legitimate line, even though the legitimate line goes through the distaff, the, the woman. Um, Lucas comes to the house, 
um, to get his wife on page 46. I reckon you thought I wouldn't take her back, did you? The white man was sitting down in age. He and Lucas could have been brothers, almost twins too. He leaned slowly back in the chair, looking at Lucas. Well, by God, he said quietly, so that's what you think. What kind of man do you think I am? What kind of a man do you call yourself? I'm a nigger, Lucas said, but I'm a man too. I'm more than just a man. I'm the same thing made my poppy that made your grandma. I'm going to take her back. By God, Edmund said, I never thought to ever pass my oath to a nigger, but I will swear, Lucas had turned already. He doesn't listen. He whirled. I mean, they're both very proud men. Very, and, and in some ways, Lucas is even prouder because he's black. He's had to live under the onus of being the inferior one. He whirled. The other was standing now. They faced one another, though for the instant Lucas couldn't even see him. Not to me, Lucas said. I want her in my house tonight. You understand? He went back to the field. Um, next page. Maybe when he got old, he would become resigned to it, but he knew he would not, would never, not even if he got to be a hundred and forget her face and name and the white man's in his too. I will have to kill him, he thought, or I'll have to take her and go away. For an instant he thought of going to the white man, only telling him they were leaving now, tonight at once. Only if I were to see him again right now, I might kill him, he thought. I think I've decided which I'm going to do. But if I was to see him, meet him now, my mind might change. And that's a man, he's, it's like Hamlet, he's, um, what's the word, he's scolding himself, he's um, shaming himself. He thought, he keeps her in the house with him six months and I don't do nothing. He sends her back to me and I kills him. It would be like I had done said aloud to the whole world that he never sent her back because I told him to, but he'd give her back to me because he was tired of her in his pride. He can't see. There's no out for him. However he looks at it, he's going to be humiliated. So he goes into the bed, sneaks in at night, walks in, and he stands over the bed until um, um, Zach looks up at him on page 51. Then he found the eyes of the face and the pillow looking quietly up at him because he knew then why he had to wait until daylight. Because as a man, he's got to, he can't just sneak in and kill him. There's too much of a man for him to do that. Because you are a McCaslin too, he said, even if you was woman made to it. Maybe that's the reason. Maybe that's why you've done it. Because you and your pa got from old Carruthers had to come to you through a woman. A critter not responsible like men are responsible. Not to be held like men are held. So maybe I've seen, or may, maybe I have even already forgive you except I can't forgive you because you can forgive only them that injure you. Even the book itself, don't ask a man to forget them that he's fixing to harm because even Jesus found out at last there was too much to ask a man. Put the razor down. I know you was afraid. Um, he does, he throws the razor away and then um, Zach gets the, the gun and he puts it on the bed between them and says, um, we'll go for it, um, and that will settle it. So this is a duel. And as men of honor, both of them are, are trying to, I mean, Lucas didn't come in and kill him. He waits till he wakes. Um, Zach pulls out the gun. He doesn't shoot him to defend himself. He puts it on the bed because these are two men settling a quarrel about a woman. And what's interesting is it, it's fairly clear nothing happened. 
This is how the pride can so magnify an event and make something of it that wasn't even there to begin with. Um, going over on page 54. Then Lucas was beside the bed. He didn't remember moving at all. He was kneeling, their hands gripped, facing across the bed and the pistol. The man whom he'd known from infancy, with whom he had lived until they were both grown, almost as brothers lived. They had fished and hunted together. They had learned to swim in the same water. They had eaten at the same table in the white boy's kitchen and in the cabin of the negro's mother. They had slept under the same blanket before a fire in the woods. They had grown up together. For the last time, Lucas said, I tell you, then he cried, and not to the white man, and the white man knew it. He saw the whites of the negro's eyes rush suddenly with red, like the eyes of a bayed animal, a bear, a fox. I tell you, don't ask too much of me. I was wrong, the white man thought. I've gone too far. Um, on page 53, the two of them are facing off. Um, Lucas, you know I could beat you. So you thought to beat me with old Carruthers like Cass Edmund done Isaac. Use old Carruthers to make Isaac give up the land that was his because Cass Edmund was the woman May McCaslin, the woman branch, the sister. The old Carruthers would have told Isaac to give in to the woman can, couldn't fend for herself. He thinks, I mean this is the, the, the way cunning takes over and colors the way you read. He thinks Isaac was cheated out of the inheritance. We'll learn that Isaac gave it up. He renounced it. But I, I think he can't imagine somebody giving it up. This is beyond his comprehension. So the gun is there, and then the two spring for it on page 56, in the middle of that paragraph. The white man sprang, hurling himself across the bed, grasping at the pistol and the hand which held it. Lucas sprang too, and they met over the center of the bed, where Lucas clasped the other with his left arm, almost like an embrace, and jammed the pistol against the white man's side and pulled the trigger and flung the white man from him all in one motion, hearing as he did so the light, dry, incredibly loud click of the misfire. Um, we get a reminiscent um, of Molly bringing the food to him. You know, we're still not back in the present. We're still back in 1898. And um, we, we get this moment when Molly has brought out the food and, and then on, at the very end of section two, this is on 58 for me, Lucas is thinking, women, he thought, women, I won't never know, I don't want to, I'd rather never know than to find out later I have been fooled. He turned towards the room where the fire was, where the supper waited. This time he spoke aloud, how to God, he said, can a black man ask a white man to please not lay down with his black wife? And even if he could ask, how could God, how to God can the white man promise he won't? This is so amazing. You won't find this in any other writer. Here's a man thinking, he's black. Nothing happened. But as a man of honor, wants to be a man, how can he not have this thought? He can't go to Edmonds and ask this without humiliating because it's like he would be putting him in his feet. Um, and even if he does ask, he knows that the sexual appetites of men are so great, even if he asked, how could he be sure of anything? And even if he could ask, how, could, how in God can the white man promise he won't? So this goes right to the heart of the sexual relationships between a man and a woman and, and between the black and white 
relationships and the strains between them. Now, the, the point I want to make here, just for a second, section three begins, George Wilkin Edmund said, where are we in time? We're back where we were, what, listen to this, we were back where we were three seconds ago. Lucas arrives at the porch, he's going to inform on George Wilkins, Edmund comes out and says, George Wilkins, here we are. Three seconds has elapsed. What does that say about time, about spiritual time? Because this whole history, this whole memory intervened, concretely, took its place in a sequence when the sequences come to tell on George, George Wilkins, who, and you'll tell on him. But here's this episode from, what is it, 43 years earlier, 43 years suddenly taking its place here. So Faulkner is showing us that there's a difference between scientific time, mechanical time, where integers are equal in, in duration, and to a spiritual time that's distended, expanded, because of its significance. Because here we see what's, um, what's at stake. Um, oh God, where is it? There's that line. Um, Oh, I don't, dang. There's that line where, where we um, are looking at things from Ross' point of view, and it says that he reached that point in his life where he realized that what was between the two men, between Lucas and Zach, this is Roth Edmonds reflecting back on his father, Zach. He said there was something between the two men and he knew it was a black woman. He said, because that didn't exist between Lucas and Isaac, as an old man, or, or Lucas and anybody else. It was just Lucas and Zach. Um, sorry, I don't... Um, anyway, the, the point I want to make here is, here's, here's one of the important things to see. Imagine us observing two men. One man walking to the porch, saying hello to another man, another man greeting and saying hello, right? We're in Plato's cave. To all appearances, it's just one man greeting another. What we've learned by the way Faulkner does it is what's between them, what lies at the bottom of these two men is something neither one of them shows in that exchange, George Wilkins, George Wilkins. It's that there is this past with this moment when to all purposes, Lucas killed him because he pulled the trigger. It, it, and remember, he, he imagined, I'm going to kill him. He's going to be dead. Next morning, I'm going to be hanging from a tree with oil under me. So we get the whole psychology of a race and the struggles between the two races in these two men that shows nowhere on the surface. So Faulkner, like Shakespeare, is showing us the appearances of things, but he's also showing us there's so much more going on. Okay. Now, I want to I close with the other story, but I wanna, I wanna, here's the question that I want to ask you guys, because um, I hope it, the force of it becomes clear. Um, we, it seems to me we've taken a turn. And all the way up from the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, divine, you know, Shakespeare, to Moby Dick, we were dealing with works that in some way or another were explicitly religious. The, the pagans believed in gods. The gods kept coming in and out of the works all the time. With Faulkner, we've entered into a modern world. Except for Molly, who says that quote I didn't read, but when she comes to Edmund, she said, 
uh, wants to get free. He, he's there's a curse. She says the god. Um, what goes back in the earth belongs to God. Right, and there's that quote from God when God says, "What's mine is mine." You know that it's mine. That's from Molly, the woman. Um, we're in, we're in a world that's understood in naturalistic terms. This is a scientific world. So the tenets of naturalism govern everywhere. There are no gods coming in and out of the world. Why? Because there are none present to our senses. If the spirit is working in the world, I'm stepping outside of Faulkner for a second. If the spirit is working in the world, we cannot perceive him with our senses. We have to put sequence together in a way other people don't. And a scientist will never allow for the workings of the spirit in a sequence. Sequence to the modern is what we can perceive with our senses empirically. What scientist is going to acknowledge the workings of uh, the causalities of the spirits in a cause and effect world? So we're in a naturalistic world. God's not present. So the, the question that we began the course with that I keep asking at the end of each work is this, where can we find Christ? Now, obviously, I'm asking the same question here, where can we find Christ? We tend to associate Christ with a person, almost always, yeah? We, we said that Christ was present in Portia, in Achilles, in Aeneas, in Dante, in Beatrice, um, in Hermione and Paulina, remember? I mean, those women were so Christ-like in what they did. So we've, we've talked about the presence of Christ, but we've also seen that the Spirit works through time. At the end of Winter's Tale, all these things were happening that, could, that were not the result of what men did. And I asked the question, is the Spirit present here? Is he working? And the Spirit, it's got to be clear here, the Spirit for us means the Spirit of Christ. Because when Christ commissions the Spirit, he's to, he's to continue to carry forward the work of Christ. So the Holy Spirit for us is the Spirit of Christ as we know it. I hope that's clear. So we've seen, we've, I mean, some of the questions that I've been asking, can we see Christ in an action, in things? That poem, The Supernatural Love, you know, when the girl pricks herself, we talked about how that she was actually participating in the crucifixion. In Hopkins' poetry, The Wind Hover, The Farmer Plowing the Land, in Kingfisher's Catch Fire, he sees it in the bird, the stones going down the well. Hopkins finds Christ everywhere. Okay, so here's my question. Can we find Christ in the people? Yes, I mean, that's a question I'm gonna ask, but I wanna push it a step farther, and it's one of the reasons I'm picking up um, Hopkins in the Wreck of the Dutchland. Can we find Christ in a writer, or any of us, any of us, in the way we use our words, what we express, and the spirit that we bring to them? Faulkner goes into the, I want, to, I want to come back to close it on this. Faulkner goes into the lives of these characters and he uncovers this life, particularly in these black people. For the whites at that point, so many of these black people didn't have an interior. They were things. They were known as objects the way, I mean, you know that one of the effects of the fall that I've been talking about is we tend to objectify everybody all. 
Love means coming into union with another as that other is. It becomes one with that self. The tendency in our life is to treat another as an object. How, how many couples actually become one, truly one, where they enter the interior? Because to do that involves risk and pain. Faulkner takes us into the lives of the people. I, I, I'm assuming that all of you feel like you know Lucas. I mean, have entered into his life, the pride, the hurt, the humiliation. It's going to be even more true with writer Pantaloons. If you read Pantaloons, you know how painful that is. That's a black man. And the horror, I mean, one of the horrors of that story is the, the white sheriff and the white wife at the end, the things they say about them show they don't even begin to see what we've been helped to see. We enter into that man's life with all of his ag agony. Could Faulkner have done that without a great cost to himself? Is Christ present? How else can anybody, any writer take on that pain? And let me make this simpler. In a Hollywood movie, if you had Molly and Lucas together, it would either, it would either be cheapened, they, they, they get a divorce and they're gone, or it gets sentimentalized. They go back and everything's sweet. Faulkner doesn't sentimentalize. He won't make things sweet. There's a cost of suffering, this mystery of suffering. So can we find Christ in writing, in a writer, in, in what he reveals? Because remember, what, what do prophets do? They help show us things about ourselves we don't want to see. To go into that deeply means you risk Christ. Will we find him? Think about how a writer, an artist, will cheapen it either way. Avoid it, sentimentalize it. Faulkner never does that. He, he always is equal to the task. What did that cost him as an artist? The suffering. So the question that I want to set out now for the remainder of our work on Faulkner is can we find Christ in what a writer's doing, the way he unfolded, what he's revealing? That's why I decided to do the Wreck of the Dusseldorf with you guys because at the center of this poem is Hopkins writing, struggling to find meaning with the death of those five nuns. And it's going to bring him to a crisis dealing with suffering. Why this suffering? What, do art, what can artists bring out of suffering if they're truthful to it? How many artists actually want to risk the suffering? It's much easier to avoid it or to cheapen it sentimentally. Yeah, I hope I'm making sense. Because I think most people don't think along these lines, but you know what I'm talking about, about cheapening it, either sentimentalizing it, making everything okay, or going to the other extreme, just not dealing with it at all. So here we're reading a writer who is, who is um, entering into this, um, this covenant, dealing with the chosen one, Ike and the world he's inherited, the South here in America. This is us again. So what's he doing with his writing? Is Christ there? That's the question that I wanted to pose. Because it's by way of saying, we've been looking, we tend to look for Christ in a person. Since the wind hover, we should be looking at him for him everywhere. A bird, a fire, a girl pricking her finger. Do we find him here? If so, where? Okay. Let me close with the, with the, can you turn to 106? Um, 
didn't find that page, sorry. There's that wonderful page where he realizes that it's... On page one of six, this is from the perspective now of um, Roth Edmonds. Um, um, and we're going back to that period when Roth and Henry were born. But he didn't leave within a year. He married not a country woman, a farm woman, but a town woman. And McCaslin Edmonds built a house for them and allotted Lucas a specific acreage to be farmed as he saw fit as long as he lived or remained on the place. That's old Crother making provision for the slaves. Then McCaslin Edmonds died and his son married. And on that spring night of flood and isolation, the boy Crothers was born. Still in infancy, he had already accepted the black man as an adjunct to the woman who was the only mother he would remember. Molly raised him. Molly raised Roth. It's the only mother he's known. Even before he was out of infancy, the two houses had become interchangeable. Himself and his foster brother sleeping on the same pallet in the white man's house or in the same bed in the Negroes and eating of the same food at the same table in either, actually preferring the Negro house the hearth on which even in summer a little fire had always burned. Think about a young boy growing up. How, I'm, I'm, and young women, does, I mean all of us as children. I can remember in, um, staying with my aunt when I was a, a child for a while. My mom never cooked bread, but my aunt did. Waking up in the morning to the smell of, of, of homemade bread um, could get could get a hold of my soul any day now. Um, God. So imagine, I mean, a fire. If you've grown up with a fire, and that's a part of your life every day, how, how much you associate with that home. Eating of the same food, um, and either actually preferring the Negro out the hearth, on which even in summer a little fire always burns, centering the life in it um, to his own that centers his life, it gives him a center. Think about it, God, this is, this is gut-wrenching, this story, it seems to me. It centers his life. It did not need to come to him as a part of his family's chronicle that his white father and his foster's brother, Blackman, had done the same. It never even occurred to him that they, in their turn, and simultaneously, had not had the first remembering projected upon a single woman whose skin was likewise dark. One day he knew without wondering or remembering when or how he had learned that either that the black woman was not his mother and did not regret it. He knew that his own mother was dead and did not grieve. There was still the black woman. That's as much as he knows. He's a white man. That's his mother. He doesn't grieve. He didn't know her. She is his mother. Down. Besides, he was no longer an infant. He and his foster brother rode the plantation horses and mules. They had a pack of small hounds to hunt with and promise of a gun in another year or so. They were sufficient, complete, wanting, as all children do, not to be understood, leaping in mutual embattlement before any threat to privacy, but only to love, to question and examine unchallenged, and to be let alone. They're kids. Just unreflective, loving each other. Then one day came the old curse of his father's, the old haughty ancestral pride, based not on any value, but on an accident of geography, stemmed not from courage and honor, but from wrong and shame, descended to him. He did not recognize it then. He and his foster brother, Henry, were seven years old. So this is 1905. 
because they were born in 1898. They had finished supper at Henry's house and Molly was just sending them to bed in the room across the hall where they slept when there, when suddenly he said, I'm going home. Let's stay here, Henry said. I thought we was going to get up when Papa did and go hunting. You can't, he said. He was already moving towards the door. I'm going home. All right, Henry said, following him. And he remembered how they walked. Now, Henry follows him because it was the natural thing to do. He has no idea that something just changed. Then he went to the bed and lay down on it, rigid, staring up in the dark ceiling, even after he heard Henry raise onto one elbow. Now remember, they've always slept on the pallet together. This is the first time that, that Roth slept on the bed, and that puts him above him. Um, then he went to the bed and lay down on it, rigid, staring up at the dark ceiling, even after he heard Henry raise on one elbow looking towards the bed with slow, inequable astonishment. Are you going to sleep up there? Henry said. Well, all right. This here pallet sleeps all right to me, but I reckon I'd just as leave if you wants to. And Rosen approached the bed and stood over the white boy, waiting for him to move over and make room until the boy said, harsh and violent, but not a sound, no. Henry didn't move. You mean you don't want me to sleep in the bed? Nor did the boy move. He didn't answer, rigid on his back, staring upward. All right, Henry said, quietly, and went back to the pallet and laid down again. The boy heard him, listened to him. He couldn't help it, lying clenched and rigid and open-eyed, hearing the slow, equable voice. I reckon on a hot night like tonight we will sleep cooler if we shut up, the voice said. How am I? Are you neither going to sleep if you keep on talking? Henry hushed then. But the boy didn't sleep long after Henry's quiet and untroubled breathing had begun, lying in a rigid fury of the grief he could not explain, the shame he would not admit. Then he slept. Go down, they never slept in the same room again and never again ate at the same table because he admitted to himself it was shame now and he did not go to Henry's house um, for a month. Then one day he, he does go, wanting, want, he's missing it. The, the community, the communion. He's going to the house hoping to have a meal, expecting to have a meal. He went to Molly's house. It was already late afternoon. Henry and Lucas would be coming up from the field. At any time now, Molly was there looking at him from the kitchen door as he crossed the yard. There was nothing in her face, he said, the best he could for that moment because later he would be able to say it all night, say it once and forever so that it would be gone forever. Facing him before he entered her house, yet stopping, his feet slightly apart, trembling a little, lordly, preemptory. I'm going to eat supper with you all tonight. It was all right. There was nothing in her face. He could say it almost. What a Negro had to learn to just wear, you know, not anger, not resentment, not humiliation, just you go on. Um, nothing in her face. There was nothing in her face. He could say it almost any time now when the time came. Of course you is, she said. I'll cook you a chicken. Then it was as if it never happened at all. Henry came almost at once. He must have seen him from the field, and he and Henry killed and dressed the chicken. Then Lucas came, and he went to the barn with Henry and Lucas while Henry milked. Then they were busy in the yard. It's like, it's almost as if things have returned to normal. Then they were busy in the yard in the dust smelling the cooking chicken until Molly called Henry 
and then a little later himself, the voice as it had always been peaceful and steadfast. Come and eat your supper. But it was too late. The table was set in the kitchen. God, it's crushing to read. Hard for me to read. It was too late. The table was set in the kitchen where it always was, and Molly stood at the stove drawing the biscuit out as she always stood. But Lucas was not there, and there was just one chair, one plate, his glass of milk beside it. The platter heaped an untouched chicken, and even as he sprang back, gasping for an instant, blind as the room rushed and swam, Henry was turning towards the door to go out of it. Are you ashamed to eat when I eat, he cried. Henry paused, turning his head a little to speak, and the voice slow and without heat. I ain't shamed nobody, he said peacefully, not even me. So he entered his heritage. He ate its bitter fruit. He listened as Lucas referred to his father as Mr. Evan, never as Mr. Zack. He watched him avoid having to address the white men directly by any name at all with a calculation so cold and constantly alert, a finesse so deliberate and unflagging that for a time he could not tell, even if his father knew that the Negro was, was refusing to call him Mr. Nobody does with language what Faulkner does. I mean, he's so articulate. He, he makes something so clear. Um, I can't, um, I can't find that line. I wish I could, uh, where Roth is recalling back and realizing that it was a woman. Um, but the, the point I want to make here is that what Faulkner is doing with these flashbacks is showing us the inheritance, the, that how much individuals carry of the wounds of the past. Um, even if they don't show in surface exchanges, um, the wounds are racial, sexual, um, they're real, they're deep, um, and they take their place in the narrative. So. Um, even though they occurred 45 years earlier, it's, it's as if they're still alive. Um, Freud, would, Freud would go nuts with this stuff, but... So, um, that's it. I mean, like, any questions or... So what? It's page 111. Oh, is that where he had yeah, things? At the bottom. 111? It's not my 111. Then in the adolescence, there's a chart 110. I've been a page ahead of you each Then in his late teens, almost a man even knew what it had been. It was a wound. That's it, yeah. Yeah, it's a 111 or 112. Am I? It's um, 112 for me, but he, it's saying, then in his late teens, almost a man, he even knew what it had been. It was a woman, he thought. My father and a nigger over a woman. My father and a nigger man over a nigger woman. Because he simply declined even to realize that he'd ever refused to think a white woman. He didn't even think Molly's name. That didn't matter. And by God, Lucas beat him, he thought. Edmonds, he thought harshly and viciously. Edmonds, even a nigger McCaslin is a better man better than all of us. Old Carruthers got his nigger bastards right in his backyard and I would like to have seen the husband or anybody else that said him nay. Yes, Lucas beat him, else Lucas wouldn't be here. If father had beat Lucas, he couldn't have let Lucas stay here even to forgive him. 
It will only be Lucas who could have stayed because Lucas is impervious to anybody, even to forgiving them, even to having to harm. What's beautiful, I mean, what's sort of amazing is neither man can escape his pride. They are both humiliated. And what, I mean, given the pride that they stand in, what can they do? You know, um, Faulkner is just extraordinary in these things. And the, the, to, but to go back to the point that I was making, it, these people bear these burdens of pride, and um, and there is this surface of manners and exchange and you know legal procedures. And but what he's showing is the pride and honor, the pity, the suffering. Um, um, so. We started again, so any questions about this before we, sorry it took so long. Next week we'll do pantaloons in black and um, the old people. You all know what the, the pantaloon figure is, don't you? I'll, I'll bring a, you all know what the pantaloon figure is? Here's an image of him. It's that figure of the, of the clown with the, here. You all know that figure, right? Yes. Yeah. From Commedia dell'arte. Um, so Ryder, the black man. Well, oh, wait. Is the pantaloon in black the writer? You all read pantaloons, right? You should have read it by now. Is, is he the pantaloon? Or is it the white people who have no sense of what's going on? in this man, and it, he, you know that he lost Manny, his wife, and he undergoes this horrible or ordeal and ends up being killed at the end. Um, who's the pantaloon? We'll wait for next week. I hope you're enjoying Faulkner. He really is extraordinary. He really is extraordinary. Where is Christ? Is he present in the way a person uses words? I don't know if this is. Oh.